Welcome to the Launch and Standout Podcast, brought to you by the Launch and Standout Agency. Just so you guys know, this podcast is, I dedicate this to my main man, Mike Kittrich. Uh, you know, he changed my life with one conversation. And um, as I was growing Stinky Cakes, anytime I had a problem, I could just, it was so cool to just tap on my phone and call Mike Kittrich's house. Now, if I didn't get Mike, I got this guy right here, Tim O'Brien. So I, I asked him to be on uh, the first episode of the Launch and Stand Up podcast, because you know, we lost Mike a couple months ago. and. I promise for the rest of my life, I will always share his story because he means so much to me. And just being a young entrepreneur, having crazy ideas, and you go to talk to your family and friends, and like, you're crazy. And then you talk to a guy that did five, sold his business for 500 million, and you go, man, no, that's, that's great. Um, here's what I, here's how I would do it. Like, those things I think every hungry entrepreneur should have access to, and that's what this podcast is about. Tim, thank you so much for being here. It's an honor, Mike. Uh, you know, Mike Kittredge always, always remembered you, always thought you were a cool guy, and always wanted you to do well. And he was, he was happy to, to be somewhat of an inspiration and a, an idea guy for you. Thank you. That's great to hear. Thank you. Well, not, not only that, he, like I said in my book, Launch and Stand Out, he's on my Mount Rushmore when it comes to entrepreneurship. There literally is no Mike Conley and Stinky Cakes and Launch and Stand Out, none of that without Mike, because when I was a kid and I had to read before I could play my Nintendo, like one of the guys I read about was Mike Kittredge. And like, so they go, oh, wow, this guy sold candles and made money. So that was like common sense to me. Like I can do that, you know? So that's where my admiration for him comes. Um, that and he allowed me to play Super Mario Brothers, so it was always good. <laughs> yeah, he was a great guy. Uh, one of my best stories about Mike happened about I don't know, maybe two or three months after I went to work for him in the, uh, in the early 1990s, actually in 1990. Okay. So this was back when dinosaurs ruled the earth, <laughs> you know, but, um, but I'd only been working with him for about maybe three or four weeks and it was after hours and we were walking through the shipping area, I remember it very well, and there were all these shelves of finished candles getting shipped out to, you know, all parts of the country and Canada and even overseas and I said, I said, Mike, did you, you know, did you ever think it was going to get this big? And this was tiny compared to what it eventually turned into, of course. And he said, you know, yes and no. You know, I always dreamed it might be big, but I didn't really in my gut ever see it becoming this big. And he says, and it's going to get bigger. I just know it. And I said, well, how do you feel about that? And he said, he said you know, a, a guy like me, a little guy like me from South Hadley was probably, probably never meant to have this kind of this kind of success. So, and this is what struck me at that time. He said, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna have as much fun with it as I can, I'm gonna share it with as many people as I can, and see where the ride takes me. And I thought, when I, when I heard him say that, I said, this is a good guy, he gets it, and he's got a, he's got a big vision and a big heart, and I, I, you couldn't help but follow a guy like that. Wow, yeah, it, it was funny, because when I met him, I was at HCC, and they were having a fundraiser to raise money for what ended up becoming the Kittridge Center. Mm -hmm. And like everyone was like fascinated by him walking around, right? And I remember, like, first of all, his house was amazing. I've never seen nothing like that. And we met like 
somewhere, like a pavilion or something. It was like a tennis court and a yeah. little bowling alley thing. And I was like, that's cool. And my friends had like bowling alleys. That was a cool thing. But when Mike was walking around, what I noticed was that he wasn't arrogant. He wasn't, yeah, this is my house. Yeah, this is. He was like greeting everybody. Yeah. And he was having the conversation. He would stop and talk with everyone. And it was like really cool. He was like a down to earth person. Like my first mentor that I had that was a very successful business owner was in the Bahamas and he ran the resort and he was the same way and he had so this guy he had this um, Rolls Royce and I remember asking him Mr. Peterson why don't you ever drive that Rolls Royce you know because it was me I was like 12 years old it was me I'll drive it every day and he said son let me tell you something when I meet someone new and I'm driving that car they want to talk to my money yeah. And he also had like a rental agency, he rented, rented cars. He sure. Said, if I'm driving one of those cars and someone new comes to talk to me, they want to talk to me. That changed my whole life, man, because I always wanted a, a Lamborghini. <laughs> and then after that, like, yeah, so if I get a girl because I'm driving a Lamborghini, does she like me or the Lamborghini? But Mike was like that, man. You, if you didn't know him and what it was, you wouldn't have known. But that same day, I, I knew his story. I read it a million times. I st so I said to him, Mr. Kittredge, can you tell me your story, like the your, the raw version, not like the not like the the, the magazine version. I, I want to know like the raw version. And I he, he like jumped back, like people don't really, you know, no one asked me that tonight. So like so then he started talking to me. We spoke for like 20 minutes, and in that 20 minutes, he took me from how he started all the way to when he sold it, and I was like, it may, have, it may have been longer, but it seemed like a short conversation, the guy was eating it up. But what struck me was, when we were done talking, he looked me dead in my eyes and said, young man, you have what it takes, go make it happen. <laughs> and I promise you, that's why I only have a two year degree and didn't go and get my MBA. Because once he told me that, like that was, that was, this was something I knew already from five, I knew, I knew this. So when he said it, I was like, oh, I'm good. So like all this crazy stuff that I created after that was because he gave me that, that nod. Because it's almost like an artist, a real artist, wouldn't tell a bad artist they're an artist. They would kind of give them instruction to improve. They wouldn't give them the nod. So when I got that nod from him, I mean, that might sound crazy, but that's why today I don't have a degree. No, it doesn't sound crazy. And, and that was almost Mike's story himself. He at one point in his life, he envisioned himself becoming a history teacher and, you know, having a, a more conventional path in life. But um, he, he actually dropped out of school because he, the, the people he was, who was being counseled by in school didn't, didn't see the business as having the potential that he did. Okay. And he realized he wasn't going to be able to get the guidance in conventional school at that time. They weren't teaching entrepreneurship at that time. Uh. And, and so wow. he realized, if I'm going to do this, I kind of got to do this myself. And he did. He just said, the heck with it. I'm going to work 22-hour days, and I'm going to have no social life, and I'm not going to be hanging out with my friends like most of my peers are. Right. I'm going to pursue this, and I'm going to give it all I got until I either fail or I make it. And he made it. I'm glad you said about the 22-hour days, because a lot of times people think, it's just like super easy to run a business. And I, and I say this all the time, business is simple, it's not easy, it's not easy because you have to do the work. And being dedicated to working quote unquote 22 hours um, is, is a trait that Mike has and like any successful business owner that you ever meet, they have that same kind of um, 
mindset. Can you talk a little bit more about like, like about that? Yeah, actually, I, I brought with me um, some of the stuff that that uh, when Mike would go to speak, I would typically pull together his talking points for him, or I would I would write his speeches and. I would literally put words in his mouth sometimes, but uh, you know, he did a great job of telling his own story far right. better than I ever could. But one of the things that uh, I was thinking about as you said that last thing was uh, the best and worst things about being an entrepreneur, and Mike and I work very carefully on this, this sort of top, top five list of positives and negatives, and I'd like to read a little okay, bit yeah, of it. Okay, yeah, please. So he'd say, you know, the negatives about being an entrepreneur, pressure, it's all on you. Pressure is all on you. You got to be able to make all the decisions. You got to be able to figure out the financing. Uh, you got to be able to figure out your supply line. You got to be able to figure out your marketing, your customers, your, your logistics. How are you going to get the product there? Or how are you going to how are you going to get the all the pieces that make a business work? Personnel, hiring and firing. You got to be an HR person. And these days, it's it's even harder to be an HR right. person. You make a mistake, you can you can step in it, right? Sure. <laughs> so. Um, he would say, you got to be a master of tra all trades. You have to know every job in your company, whether it's a two-person company, a 22-person company, or bigger. You have to know every job because you've got to be able to train somebody for it or hire somebody for it or be able to assess how they're doing at that job. Right. So that's, that's a real big load to be able to do all that. And then, as, as we spoke about a minute ago, the, the sacrifices, what he called the great sacrifices, putting all that time in those 20, 22-hour days, you, you give up family, friends, your health, your hobbies. I mean, Mike was a guitar player. He loved playing music. He basically didn't play guitar for six, eight years at a time wow. when he was building this. You know, he'd been a, part of his success was because he had been such a good entrepreneur at music as a 13, 14, 15-year-old kid. Mm. He pulled a band together. He was inspired by the Beatles when they first appeared on Ed Sullivan in 1964, and he said, that's what I want to do. Right. And he had a guitar. And a year later, he had pulled together a band, and he figured out the song list, and he figured out what their costumes were going to be, and he figured out the order of the songs they were going to play, and he was an entrepreneur before he was an entrepreneur. On the positive side of being an entrepreneur, the things he always wanted to stress when he would be talking to an audience were independence. It's the flip side of that. You get to make all the decisions. Right. That's pretty heady stuff, especially <laughs> if you're young, right? Sure. You get to be a boss maybe in your teens, right? right? And he was. You have a flexible schedule. If you want to work a 20-hour day, maybe that frees you up the next day to go do something else or work more hours. Right. But you're deciding how it's going to be and you're going to, you're going to risk how that goes. Uh, it's fun. I mean, he always felt, and I was with another entrepreneur just a few hours ago, and they said the same thing. They said, if you're doing it right, it actually is fun. It doesn't feel like work. And it isn't work, it's just fun. And I can see it on your face. You know, when you talk about stinky cakes, you know, you had some tough times getting that off the ground, but now, as you said on your own webpage, I love the excitement of seeing people give these gifts and get these gifts, because they, they smile and they laugh and it's real to them and it's something they need. It's, you, you found a niche, you found a need, and you, and you solved it. So, yeah. you know, Mike would say, that's what you needed to do. Um, what Mike liked to call, uh, the, similar to that, was what he called the applause factor. He used to love uh, being at Yankee Candle on a busy, beautiful fall day in New England, you know, in the 90s, when it was still on the rise to the company that he wound up selling. Mm -hmm. And he, said, he used to wear a baseball cap and sunglasses, and he used to just hang out on the, on the, 
on the porch or he'd you know, sort of skulk around in the store. He just loved to sidle up to people and listen to them saying, what a great place this is. It's so cool. It smells so good. Look at these great displays. Look at those animatronic characters singing to us. Look at the train going around. It's snowing in the German village. You know, all that stuff that made it so fun. He, it was, you know, a great, a great jazzer for him. And of course, there's the economic independence. If you do things right, you don't have to work for somebody who's telling you what to do or holding you up to their, you know, you get to call the shots, you know. And, um, you get to be, but I think what he said at the end of most of it was you get to teach others. You know, when you, if you make it, you get to teach others. And he, he was big on that. And that's why he spoke to you that, that night at that fundraiser. And he loved to go to those entrepreneurship classes. And he loved to have other people. He loved to tell his story because he said, I don't know sometimes if I'm talking to people who never will do it, but I hope if there's one person out there that I can, that I can spark, Maybe I can add something to their life story, and they'll go off and do something different. Wow. You know, so so it was, it was a lot of work, but for him, you know, the, the rewards always vastly outweighed the costs of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I got I got chills hearing that, and it's it's so funny because sometimes I ask myself, like, dude, where do you get all this information? And I'm a firm believer, like, information doesn't go anywhere, right? So. You saying that, it like, takes me back to being a kid and reading it and not really understanding what it meant, but saying, man, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So like a lot of the blueprint that I operate on, is, it's a lot that you just said, man, and that's, just, that's, that's pretty cool. So my question is, so Mike did pretty well in business, um, but he, he got sick and you, and you just said that sometimes you get sick. Like why? Or how was he able to keep going even when it was like difficult for him or he was dealing with a health battle or something like that? Sure. Well, there were, there were a couple of health battles for Mike over the years. Um, in 1992, I remember we were, I was with him in California. We had decided that we were going to really go for it with tourism. You know, he had had uh, a couple of years where they had motor coaches stopping in, you know. But they didn't really have a plan to attract motor coaches. And that's a business. That's an industry of its own. Okay. If you look into it, there's the American Bus Association, the National Tour Association. Group tour is a big thing in, uh, in a lot of marketing of attractions and things like that. We were in California because this was when I realized this guy is really smart. We wanted to try to figure out how to make our tour experience better. And our tour experience was watch the candles being made, see how they're packaged, see how we sell them. And it was free, and it was kind of a cool thing you could do. Okay. So where were we going to have a laboratory where we could see the same product being promoted as a tour, the same, the same product, but seeing how different companies are doing it? Where could we best find that out? Well, we couldn't go to the, the shoe factory. There aren't many shoe factories. We couldn't go to the, to the anvil factory. There aren't many anvil factories. But Mike turned one of his hobbies wine into the best field trip ever for this. He said, we're going to go to the Napa Valley because there's like 30, 40 different wineries all in this small 100-mile area, and we'll be able to take a dozen different tours in the space of a few days and see how they do their wine tours because it's the same product. It's grow the grapes, it's pick the grapes, it's crush the grapes, it's make the wine, it's sell the wine at your own little store. So we were going to see that. Same thing, but a dozen different ways. And we'd walk away saying, you know, the way they did that 
at Winery A, I loved their signage, right. but the tour guide was really great at Winery F. And the video at, at Winery K was the best of all. So we were gonna see that. So I'm coming back to health. Yeah. It was on that trip, we were having this great experience, soaking all this in. And Mike was scratching at his neck, and I remember he said, uh, he said, uh, he said uh, you know, I got this lump here. He says, I got a doctor's appointment we, when we get back. He says, I, I, he was half joking. He says, I, I sure hope it doesn't turn out to be cancer. You know, it did. It turned out to be Hodgkin's disease. Wow. And he was diagnosed in October of 1992. And it was stage three. And at the time, stage, it had basically five stages. It was well into stage three. One or two were quite curable at that time. But stage three was definitely a coin toss. And he knew he was going to be three years of chemotherapy and radiation, and he, maybe he wasn't going to make it. So to answer your original question after telling you all that yeah. about the wineries, was how did he keep going? Well, two things. He had a resolve in him. He wasn't going to quit. He, he worked as much as he could through all that radiation. I remember he lost his eyebrows. He lost his hair. He turned yellow. He was jaundiced. When we opened the Bavarian Village in September 1993, he had been sick for over a year mm. at that point and didn't know it, and he was going through it. But he got up there, and when we opened that thing, he cut the ribbon, and we got out our guitars, and we played rock and roll for two hours that afternoon, had a party, and it was a great time. But what he also had was he had put together a good team. And I saw a video of yours about a week or so ago where you talked about team, and you get it. And I think any entrepreneur, any would-be entrepreneur, should understand that team, whatever it is, whether it's you and your alter ego, talking to yourself, you're like two people inside your yeah. head. I gotta do this. What, are you crazy? Yeah, that's what we're gonna do. I don't think so. Some people have to do that. They compartmentalize their right. thoughts and they are actually debate things with themselves, right? But sometimes your team is just gonna be your friend mm -hmm. or it's gonna be a parent or a business person you respect or maybe it's, somebody nowadays that you find online and you think of them as part of your team and you kind of watch what they did. For you, Mike Kittredge was on your team and he didn't yeah. even know it because yeah. you were five and you were sort of looking at him. So Mike had a good team by then. By the 1992, he, the, the company was up to about 250 employees. So he had an executive committee that could, and some good managers and everybody was on board with the mission. You know, we're all gonna gung-ho pull together and we're not going to let a little thing like Mike's cancer stop us, are we? Wow. So we pulled together. And he got through that, and he was better than ever. But it did change his perspective on life because he also had a son who was born in 1990. Okay. And it was then when he started thinking about, he was declared cancer-free, I think, in 95 or 6. But it had already sort of changed his his think about the future. And he had, he had long figured that he was, you know, someday he'd step away from this business, but he was gonna maintain ownership, and then someday he would leave it to his son. Mm -hmm. But being so compromised with his health in his early 40s like he was, he kind of looked at the picture of the future and he realized, I don't know if I, you know, when most people in their 40s, they think, oh, I got 30, 35, 40 years left, right? He didn't know how many good years he had left. So he realized, I have to think about an exit strategy sooner than later. Right, okay. And that, and that exit strategy was, as he investigated it with his financial advisors, it looked like 
he wasn't going to be able, if he passed away, he wasn't going to be able to just suddenly leave it all to his son, and his son, eight, nine, ten years old, was going to take over, right. you know? Right. 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 He would be too young. Uh, he had to figure out a way to either live at least another 20 years and get his son up to true adulthood, or sell the company. And that's when he realized the only way he could, he could really extract all the value that the company had with his limited life outlook, mm -hmm. health-wise, was that he was probably gonna have to sell. And that's what made him start investigating that by the late 90s, and as, as it's all in the history. Yeah. In, in the spring of 1998, he finally, after listening to several suitors, he found the company that he thought was gonna be best at, at taking what he had built and carrying it forward and he would be able to retire and he would be able to have options in life, whether or not he had many years left or only a few years left. And he was gonna be able to give his son, and at that time now, um, his, his first daughter, um, later was on the planning, his daughter, his, he knew he was gonna have at least one more child. Uh, he'd be able to set them up in life such that they would have a lot of options. Right. And that was his plan. So sickness didn't stop Mike. He had, he had a tough inner resolve of his own, and he had a good team around him. So two things every entrepreneur has got to think about, because when you're alone, it's hard. I'm glad you said those two things, team and, and about healthy moving forward, because year three or four, it all, it's a blur now with stinky gigs. I, we just had like a million visitors on the website. We were just black enterprise magazine, all the press, all the attention that I wanted, because in my head, if I could get America paying attention to this little thing that I'm doing, it'll be easier for me to get investors. It'll be easier for me to, to um, either franchise um, or I'll have like many shops like Mike did um, selling the products. Or my other mentor is John Sotino, the guy that started the Vermont Teddy Bear Company. Because mm -hmm. I was learning from John and Mike at the same time. And, and, and John had a central location and then he used different forms of media to tell people about what he had and he shipped them out. So I was trying to figure out, okay, which, which route am I gonna go in? I, I have enough attention to get the money to do whatever this plan is I'm gonna do. And then I start, at this point too, I'm like almost over 300 pounds. I, Cause I didn't realize, I was, I was just focused on work. I didn't sleep, I, 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 I ate junk and whatever. So my wife, both of my wife's telling me, dude, you should, you know, go to the doctor, you'd be acting kind of weird. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. And then one of the, I used to film a lot of um, high school sports. I love basketball. And the guy did that where he was like, Mike, you should go to the hospital, man. Something's wrong with you. And I was like, okay. These two people in my life that never talked about my health are telling me I should go see a doctor. I'm going to go. Long story short, I ended up in the ICU. My blood sugar was almost 600. Um, I was really close to being a diabetic coma. They didn't know if I was going to make it. They, that was, it was a scary moment. And I tell people, like, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because, like, money wasn't important anymore. All the other stuff wasn't important. Like, I looked around, there was like 10 people in that room. They all of a sudden became the most important people to me because I realized, like, if I was gone, like, these people's lives, not that other people wouldn't be sad, but these 10 people, their lives would never be the same. So, my big dream was I wanted, I, and I still plan on doing this, is why I do everything I do with Launching Stand Out and the agency and all this other stuff, is because I want to be the next uh, Ewan Marion Kaufman. And Kaufman made all his money in pharmaceuticals and he, a big part of his foundation he gives back to entrepreneurship. So in my head, Stinky Cakes was going to become this wild success, 
and now it's start a foundation to help other people live their dreams. And in the ICU, it, the, the thing that leads me to just go and do crazy things said, well, dude, if you're gonna, be, you're gonna um, help people, go do that. And I was like, well, fine, I'll do it, but I hate business now and I'm never running a business again. So I, so I go to work with kids at Job Corps to teach them, because a lot of deliveries with Stinky Cakes, I, 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 there's a lot of teen moms or single, and then I was like, yeah, we gotta teach these men to be men. That's what I'm gonna do, yeah. So I did that, they loved it. They was like, yeah, mister, we like to learn the respect stuff, that's cool, but you know, you run a business, teach us business, because they were Googling me, and I was like, all right, business, you're slick, I'll come back to it. But I tell you this, the reason I did it was because Mike Kittridge was way more successful than me, and he took time to help me, because I, I like, like I said, any time, when I started Stinky Cakes, I wrote Mr. Kittredge a letter, handwritten letter, and I sent him, and I didn't even know if he was gonna remember me or not, because this might've been like two or three years after I met him, and, and, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna see, you know, asking him um, of what he think about my idea. And then he, I get this letter back, and like, I'm like, I still have it. And I'm like blown away, like, oh my God, he remembered me, and I can't believe it. And then I read the letter, and I promise you, that letter today is like the MBA lesson. I could, I could <laughs> read that letter right now yeah. and still learn something new. Like that's how crazy it was. So when, when my, and I based a lot of a lot of the stuff people loved about Stinky Cakes was from that letter, and he hated the name, and I didn't get it because I thought the name was cute. But now I get, now I get what he was telling me, and he was like, well, you should use a name that says what you do, so people know right away they don't have to figure it. it and it, and it was funny because John from Vermont Teddy Bear told me the same thing, and I was like. Yeah, you should probably listen to these guys. They probably know what they're talking about. But that's part of the entrepreneurship to be a little stubborn, too. But anyway, so the kids at Job Corps, when they started asking me about business, I was like, okay. Because at Job Corps, a lot of the kids, um, the young people, I should say, they um, didn't graduate high school. So now they, um, learn, they're learning how to read, learning how to get the GED, all this other stuff. So I was like, okay, if I do something for them, it's got to be real simple. So like, I started because they, they got like different trades they learn there. So basically I was like, if well, if I if I was to start a, a plumbing business using the Stinky Cakes model, here's how I would do it. So the, I started jotting down these notes and that those notes became the book Launch and Stand Out. Like, I never thought about writing a book. I'm not a, I'm not an author. I'm like, I can't even, I barely can speak English, <laughs> right? So anyway, I wrote that and it became all this other stuff. But that was because of my health. But the, my health just shifted my, my vision from being about me and me becoming successful and shifting it to helping other people become successful through the things that I know. So I, I think that's great. And then with the team, you, you learn quick to, it's so much about checking your ego because you talked about too being young and being in charge. Yeah, and it feels really good, but you realize you get so much further when you're not the smartest person in the room and you trust people to do what they're good at doing and you gotta find trustworthy people and then just move forward. So I, that, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Why, like, to me, and I could be wrong and they say never meet your heroes. So like, I always kept my distance from Mr. Kirish, even though I know he was always, I, like in my head I was like, I wanna keep him like, a, like Superman. <laughs> so, but to me he was always very humble. Like, would you agree with that? And if, if so, like, why do you think he was always so humble? Uh, I think part of the reason he was humble, there are a couple of reasons at least. First was because a big part of him just was. 
he, he, he would say, you know, because when he achieved means, he got to do some pretty cool things. He got to, he had his own plane for a few years because he wanted to have options and travel. He had a yacht for a few years because he wanted to see the world. And when you see, he used to say, when you see the world from water, you're seeing it in a different way. And it's true, all the great cities of the world are built on the water. He wanted to travel and see them that way. And it was a home that you could take with you. Right. You know, he had his clothes. He'd fly in his plane to his yacht, wherever it was, and his clothes were there, and his food was there, and his team was there, his crew was there. So it wasn't like you're flying off to a resort and you have to learn everything and you just got two suitcases. He had a whole home that could move, a movable home, right? That's why he did it. Um, but he said, when, in the world of yachting, in the world of private planes and stuff, he said, he said you see a lot of phonies. And you see a lot of people who are letting the, the wealth go to their heads, and they think they're better than somebody else. And he, says, he would always say, I'm no better than anybody else. I just had a good idea, and I managed to push it to its limit. Mm. You know? So that was part of it. He just was humble. He, he grew up, you know, his, his family was very modest means in a little, you know, uh, in South Hadley, little 675-square-foot ranch house built post-war, little shoebox house, you know. So he always had that as a heritage, you know. He, but he loved nice things, make no mistake. Right. He had a nice car collection, and he loved great wines and some lovely guitars, <laughs> you know. But the other thing was, I think he understood that it was smart to be humble. It made business sense, you know. Nobody was going to be able to walk away from encountering him and say, well, he may have sold that company for a lot of money, but he's kind of a jerk. Right. No, no, never. Nobody could say no. that, you know? And he knew that that was, that was a, a good business strategy, that people just like yourself would say, you know, I had to admire him for what he did, and I had to admire him for who he was, too, mm. you know? So it was, it, was a, it was a multi-pronged way of looking at life and how to be. And he just knew he'd be a better inspiration to other entrepreneurs if he could say, look, you can have success and you can still be a nice guy. Awesome. So I, I got like a million questions I want to ask you know, and keep it condensed. But like, what was it like creating marketing campaigns with Mike? Because I, like, I always tell people, man, yeah, yeah Mike Kerrigs did 500 million with candles, but that dude's so smart. like. He would have figured out if he could have been selling used chewing gum and would have been a five hundred million dollar company. Like, what, 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 what are your thoughts on on how he how he thought and how he saw marketing and, and, and how he was able to put it all together? Okay, I'm glad I brought my notes because there's a couple things that answer that pretty well. Um, one of them is he used to have a concept called the ladies in the Mercedes. Mm -hmm. And the ladies in the Mercedes was, you remember the food pyramid you'd learn in school and things like that? So he had, a, he had a, a, a sort of a pyramid of consumers out there. And he used to point at the top of that pyramid and he'd say, he'd draw that if he was doing a class, and he'd say, he'd point at the top of that pyramid and say, see that? That's the ladies in the Mercedes. And they're the, he meant the wealthier, the more affluent customers. And if you could get them to be interested in your product or service, you kind of got everybody else by default. Not all of them. Mm -hmm. 
but they would pay attention. So you had to kind of aim it at the top people. And how did you do that? How did you figure out how to aim it at the top people? Well, he'd say, do your research. Do your research. Now remember, he built this before the internet. So the stuff that you or I, I can just dial up now and learn about this on YouTube or go to a website on that or pull up all kinds of statistics on this, you had to do it a much harder way back then. Right. And one of the things he would do, he would go to trade shows. And he would go to trade shows that weren't even in his industry. That was one of his key things. Look outside your industry. Because in your industry, everybody's just copying each other and seeing what's going on. The way you're going to find out what's really innovative is look outside your industry. Sure. So one of the ways, I remember this very well, in 1993, we were still selling candles with, with um, hand, hand uh, I should say, artistic labels on them of mm -hmm. fruit. Mm -hmm. They were drawings. They were watercolor drawings of fruit and stuff. But the technology was starting to change right at that time. And he went out and saw some high-end fruit preserves. I think he was in Holland or something like that. And he came back with, and he would buy them. And he would come back and he'd say, can you imagine if we could do a label like this for our candles? And you know, the cinnamon would have real cinnamon sticks, pictures of real cinnamon sticks, not just some brown right. hand-drawn thing, but and the, and the fruit would look, you know, luscious and dew on it, and it would look delicious, and you would almost like be able to smell it or taste it. Just you know, smell and taste are very closely connected in your mind, and uh, and that's one of the things he would do. He'd say, "Look outside your industry," and. Uh, Look for packaging, look for marketing. That's why we went to the wine country to figure out how were we were gonna promote our tours. So we, we, we went and did that. But another thing that Mike was, was great about, I honestly, at least in marketing, I felt was that he didn't assume he had all the answers. And I don't know, I guess this is where I have to talk about myself a little bit. All right, That's, so. Yeah, please do. so I was first brought into the company to be the director of tourism because as has said, he, he, he knew, he sensed in his gut that, yeah, there's a couple of dozen buses stopping at our Deerfield store a year, but we should be doing more than that. He just knew. He, he, as an entrepreneur, he just had mm -hmm. that sixth sense. His spider sense said, we ought to be doing better than this. So I won't go into the story of how I wound up coming, but I did wind up coming to the company in the spring of 1990. And one of the things I had said to him during my interviews was, yeah, you should be doing a lot more than 40 buses a year here. And he said, well, how are we going to do it? And I said, I know how, because I was coming from the Greater Springfield Convention and Visitors Bureau, and that was a tourism promotion agency. Okay. And as I said, I knew about the American Bus Association and the National Tour Association and group leader shows. So one of the things that Mike was good at was when people came into the company, he would find out what they knew that he didn't know. And he would kind of say, all right, you know about this? Here's the ball, run with it. Mm. And if you could run with the ball, he would, he would encourage you and he would fund you. And within five years, we were up to close to a thousand buses a year. Wow. And, and how did we do that? Well, he let, I had some ideas and he, he said, I like those ideas, let, run with those, yeah. run with that. One of the things we did was we created, I, I had been doing theater for years. I had been a musician and an actor and done all kinds of stuff and I had this idea that we would create an 1800s Chandler. Back in the 1800s, people didn't know, there was all farms, and people raised, they didn't make candles out of wax, they made them out of tallow. Okay. And tallow was the rendered fat of a cow or a pig. 
or a goat. They would slaughter the animal in the fall when the weather got cool enough so the meat wouldn't spoil. They'd take the meat and dry it or salt it, and that would help them get through the winter. Okay. But if they had fattened this animal up properly, they had all this fat too. And what would they do with that? Well, these itinerant chandlers, like door-to-door -door salesmen, really peddlers, mm -hmm. would come around with their wagon, and they had this big pot, and they were experts at making candles. And they would stay at your farm for a couple of days, and they would take that animal fat, boil it down, and then dip a wick in, and you would have, after a few days, a, a, a winter supply of light in the late, you know, cold winters. Wow. Okay? And these Chandlers would do this. So we created this costume character who was a Chandler. His name was Ishmael, Ishmael Chandler, like Moby Dick, call mm -hmm. me Ishmael, mm -hmm. you know? His name was Ishmael Chandler, so it said, old, it said candle maker, and we would arrange with the bus companies, this was again pre-internet, pre-cell phone even. Wow. But the buses had radios. And they knew that this was going to work out. So what the, what the bus driver had to do was he would call. We had it all arranged on paper ahead of time, you know, what the day they were coming in, the hour they were coming in. And when they got to a certain point on the map that we had already specified in the beginning, they were supposed to call this phone number, and that was a hot number at our, at our store. And they would call and say, all right, uh, the Eastern coach is, is coming in. They're at spot three. And we'd say, okay. And we'd jump in the car with the costume and everything and run down to spot three, and they'd We'd see the bus coming around the bend because we had planned all these spots so we could see them before they got there. And as soon as the bus came around the bend, we'd put the, the character out on the roadside and he'd be out there with his bag over his shoulder and his three-cornered hat and, you know, his colonial-looking outfit. And he'd, you know, <laughs> and the bus, would, the, the bus driver would say, ladies, looks like we got us a hitchhiker up there. Think we should pick him up? And they'd say, yeah. So the, the bus would pull over. The person would get on the bus. Sometimes it was me. Sometimes it was one of my staff in the tourism department, and they loved it. I wow. mean, they just loved it because we didn't charge them. It was a free thing, free, but, but we timed it so that by the pickup point to where they actually got on board, got to Yankee Candle, it was about a 10-minute drive, which was just enough time to tell them where they're going to be dropped off, where they're going to be picked up, where are the bathrooms, because you've been on the bus mm -hmm. for an hour, you want to yeah. know that if you're a lady in your 70s, sure. <laughs> here's your free gift, here's your badge, you'll get a discount because you've got that badge on, and here's your little package of, of, of a brochure and another little set of free candles to give your friend when you get home, and we hope you'll come back another time. And that was one of the things that really helped our retail division just explode. I mean, because people were coming, it was like a tin can full of customers, right? right? 50 right. people on a bus. Instead of two and three arriving in a car, we had buses coming in 50 at a time, mm -hmm. sometimes 20 buses a day, 30 buses a day in the wow. fall, during fall foliage time. So what I'm saying is Mike was great at, at, at letting a, 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 a comparative expert know what was going to work. And he said, run with that. Like he said to you, run with your idea, young man. He said to me, I like your idea for building group tour. And we got up to 1,000 buses a year. And our, our, a lot of our uh, surveying in those years, we'd say, what got you here? And they'd say, oh, my grandmother came here on a bus and couldn't stop talking about the place. My neighbor came here on a bus and loved it so much she talked about it. So we were turning those tin cans full of ladies into bird dogs who would yeah. go out and talk about the business and the, 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 good, and the goodwill spread. Another thing we did was school groups. We started marketing to school groups 
field trips. Didn't charge you a penny. But now little Tommy comes in and dips his free candle as he learns about old time candle making. You think he gets home, you think his sister wants to now go right. dip a candle? Right. Sure, so now we gotta get in the car and come out two weeks <laughs> later with Tommy and his sister. Right. And does mom shop? Yes, she does. Does mom have a good time? Yes, she does. Does mom tell her friends about it? Yes, yes she does. So we were doing affinity marketing by making people have a good time. Mike called it entertainment marketing. It was a lot of what Disney's famous mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking. It's a, and we used, we used to, it was all about experience. And, and his story about finding out, he said, this was very early. The company had just moved to, to Deerfield. This was probably uh, the spring of 1984. They'd moved there the previous fall. And he was out there literally throwing a ball for his dog. And he, was, he had to kill a half an hour for some reason. I don't know what it was. But he looked up and he said, there were 20 people watching me throw the ball for my dog. And he said, if people are watching me throw a ball for a dog rather than be shopping in my store, I'm doing something wrong. Right. I got to go in there and amp up that action inside the store. So, so he, it instantly gave him this vision for all kinds of things. And that was the train running on the track. And later the snow falling year-round inside the store. Fake snow, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the costumed characters that were the, the German band. Do you remember mm -hmm. seeing that? I mean, the, the, the tugboat, you know, that was actually the tugboat from Chicago, which was one of his wholesale customers' boats. We brought that in there and made it part of the story. And, and all kinds of... He used to say, look, this is why we got to stay privately owned. He says, a board of directors would never allow us to do this crazy stuff. They'd say they that, where's the profit in that? Right. They wouldn't get it. But he said, that's why I'm having fun, because I got people who can, can take my vision and give me vision, and we'll just ride this crazy ride as far as it goes and see where it takes us. And it took him a long way. So Sorry for the really no, long no, answer. That's a bad. I would want you to tell it again. That was amazing. <laughs> I, I, what I, another thing I like about you in my first interaction with you that I remember, because you, when you, you were talking a couple of days, and you said, no, no, I met you, we met here. But what I remember about you, I had just, so I, I, I was now selling stinky cakes in uh, hospital gift shops. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I, I'm thinking like some hotshot, I know something, I got, so I, I, I get to the point with this distribution deal to um, get stinky cakes in like hospitals all over America. And I'm like so excited and so happy. I gotta tell Mr. Kittridge about this. I call and I ended up, uh, I think I might have wrote him again. I emailed him, I emailed him and he asked me to call. And then when I call, I got you. And you very nicely, you just, you didn't, you didn't tell me what to do. You just asked me a series of questions. And by the time I was done answering those questions, I realized that um, I would be buying myself a job instead of really um, getting a really good distribution deal. And that made me start thinking about myself as a business person and not just this guy with a cool idea. What do you think, like so many people fail, how, how was someone like Mike Kittredge be able, was able to succeed with such a simple idea? And like, any, like anybody can make a candle, but not everybody could be Yankee Candle, like what's, what's that big secret sauce to make the, uh, what, what makes him so different is what I'm, I'm asking. One of the great projects I did with Mike was to help him write his life story as a book. 
And fortunately, we got most of the really hard stuff, his childhood and the early days, the stuff that only he would know. Mm -hmm. We got it in the can before he became ill in 2012. And what I remember from those, those conversations, we'd have long conversations, we'd go for car rides sometimes, or we'd go for a walk and he would talk and I'd write down the notes and I'd bring them back the next day and say, is this right? And he'd say, yeah, change that, but otherwise you got it. I realized as we were writing that book, I remember saying to him at one point, I said, you know, your life story looks like the NCAA tournament bracket in reverse. <laughs> Like, you know how it goes from 64 on yeah. each side down yeah. to 32, yeah. to 16, to yeah. 8, to 4, yeah. to 2, to 1? I said, you started with one idea, and then there was a choice. And you could have gone one of two ways. And each of those two ways could have gone two ways itself. And 2 would become 4, would become 8, would become 16. And there were 164, 132, 132 possible outcomes here let's say. Yeah. And it looks like you took the right path almost every time. Uh. I said, there was a lot of luck involved here, wasn't there? And he said, yeah. He says, I don't like to think of it as luck. <laughs> I like to think I always made the smart decision. But yeah, sometimes it was luck. But that's kind of a, a, a sort of a flip way to, to describe it, because there probably were multiple outcomes that would have been successful. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was one path where he'd taken the other path. It would have gotten bigger sooner than it did. Right. And there was probably another path where if he'd taken that, it would have been successful, but it might have taken him five years longer. Mm. So there were multiple successful scenarios among those 132 possible outcomes, right. Right? right? But he would tell you that the secret sauce was he created something that people liked. He did it better than anybody else. He put more fragrance oil in. It was when he was in a gift shop when he was 16 and he was selling those pillars. His first candles were pillars, which was just a lump of wax like that. He, he, his very first candle for his mother was a pillar candle. He poured his crayons into that milk carton, let it harden, and pulled down the side, and he had a freestanding hard wax candle. Of course, when you lit it, it would probably melt all over the place because right. it wasn't the right grade of hardness and wax mm -hmm. and stuff. But that's what a pillar candle is. But he was in a gift, gift store, uh, the Golden Phoenix, right here in South Hadley or right across the river in South Hadley, and he heard two women, and he was eavesdropping as usual because that was his market intelligence mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, oh, these, these smell good. And the other woman said, well, they all smell good in the store, but wait till you get it home. It won't smell as good. And he said, man, that's it. That's it. I got to make my candles smell good at home too. And as he started mixing the fragrance oil with the wax, he realized you, you could, it was hard with the, the technology he had at the time. It was hard to make a candle hold as much fragrance oil as you needed for it to smell good all the time right. in a pillar form. So his, his great idea was say, all right, then let's change that. Let's get rid of the pillar. Let's put the candle in a container, a jar, an apothecary-styled jar that used to be sold to hold rice or grain or beans on your kitchen counter. He said, I'll fill that up with wax and a lot of fragrance oil. And it doesn't matter that the candle can't hold all that oil because it's got nowhere else to go. The right. glass holds it right. together. So that was a big part of the secret sauce. He figured out a new technology to make a very heavily fragranced candle that would smell good at home and while burning. And what else was it doing? It was burning. He loved to say, the secret of my business, the secret of my business is people buy my product, take it home, and immediately start destroying it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to need another. That's yes, right. It's true. Right? So that's why, you know... But he also realized that he was going to make, 
he was going to make shopping for it fun. You know, as soon as he realized that he could sell this stuff at retail, he had two, two arms of distribution. He had, I'll sell it to, to Michael's gift shop, right? The Ma and Pa gift shop. Mm -hmm. At one point, he had 10,000 accounts out there. Now, the internet killed off a lot of those, mm -hmm. those guys in the early 2000s and continues to. But at one point, he had 10,000 individual Ma and Pa gift stores out there making it. But he also had, at the peak, uh, at his peak, about 60 individual Yankee Candle-owned stores and malls. Wow. And after he sold, that number ballooned up to 550. Wow. Okay? Because we had figured out a model. He knew, by the time we started knocking out all these stores, he knew that he could pretty much sign a lease, build out the store in a few months, and it was going to do a million dollars in retail in its first year of operation. See, it's, so, it's, man, like, I wish you could see inside my brain right now. Like, I know. And, and I'm, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing John talk, and I'm hearing Mike talk again, and then I, like, even with the, the duplication thing, I created this mastermind, um, master course and mastermind called the 100 grand plan. I did that with John from, from Mont Teddy Bear. And the whole premise behind it is that get one that works very well and then you can expand it. Scale it. Scale it, right? And 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 it's just so like I'm seeing in the matrix because I and I could see how Yankee was able to do that. It's yeah. just some, it's just so simple. Another thing I want to say is geniuses steal. Like a lot of people hear that and they get it all wrong, right? So the term geniuses steal, people think, oh yeah, they steal people's ideas and they do it. No, no. Geniuses take from different environments and figure out a way to work it into what they're doing. And it's really like a form of humility because they go, you know what, I don't know everything. Someone probably knows this better than me. Let's see how they're doing it. And then the genius part is being able to turn it into something that you could use for what you're doing. So like I hear a lot of geniuses stealing what you say about you know, about Mike, about the, the, the customer experience, about when you went to the, the vineyard. There's so many other things like he would almost like he was a thinker when he when you were figuring out the labels and he saw well they got labels down pack over here now we could bring this here um, just taken from different environments and, and and being able to put it into Yankee Candle I think is great and then another thing that I like what you what you're talking about is how you're saying. He utilizes his team. Because even just talking with you and, and looking at um, some of the video scripts that you write now um, with, 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 the, with us at the Laundry Standard Agency and just watching how you interact with people, like I see so much of what happened with Yankee Candle, with, with Kringle Candle, I could see how it came out of your brain. And I, I, I think that's so cool for a guy like Mike Kittridge to be egoless in the sense that no, this guy is great at this. Let me just step back and, 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 and pull, move out the way. So you were with Mike from 1990 to 2019 when he passed, mm -hmm. right? So that tells me a lot about you. That tells me you're very trustworthy, you're very loyal, you're very talented, uh, and Mike views you as an asset and even more so a friend. What, what, what was it like being a friend, a close friend to Mike Gittridge? Um, it's funny, I, on the drive over here, I called my wife because I had to talk about a couple things from uh, my earlier meeting today. And uh, she brought up Mike and she said, you know, you guys saw the world the same way. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, he, and she said, that's, that's why you worked so well together. Yeah. Um, one of the things that was fun about working with Mike is he had a phrase called, that, that wasn't called, he, he would begin a lot of, he would, he'd pause, you know, he'd be talking about this or that, and he'd stop and he'd say, it's like you could see like, here comes an idea, you could see it coming like across his face, and he'd stop and he'd say, wouldn't it be great if we could have a, a German village where it's Christmas all year round and it snows inside and there's a band entertaining you and you go from store to store to store like you're outside but you're inside so even when it's 95 degrees in July you're like in this literally cool 62 degree place where you almost want to put on a sweater and there's snow falling and you're in the middle of a German outdoor Christmas village shop you know that's what they do they they call them Kringle Marts okay and a Kringle Mart marked in German. It, it's an it's a outdoor Christmas shop and that's how they do it in small towns in Germany. And he said, I want to do that someday. And that was in like August of 1990 and I'd been working for him about three months at that time. And I thought, this guy is crazy genius. <laughs> crazy genius. Because I learned something about Mike. If he talked about something more than three or four times, it was going to happen. Okay. You know, the first time was like, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Second time was, what do you think? I think we could. By the third time, it's like, oh man, he's going to do this. So let's like, <laughs> let's get ready. Belt yourself in because this is going to be a ride. So we had, wouldn't it be great if? W I B G I, Wibgi. To the point that you know, uh, <laughs> by the by the year twenty five, two thousand five, two thousand six, seven, we on the staff with who worked with him, we would literally say. There's a, Mike just had a Wibgy. Here's his idea, yeah. and here's how we got to try to make it work for him. Whether it was an event, or a party, or a video, or some way of, he called it the art of life, the art of life, that he wanted to have detail in everything. He thought that the secret, you know, there's that old saying, the devil's in the details, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he loved, he loved how thorough we could be, because we knew that's what he wanted, and he gave us the means to do it. You know, sometimes he'd say, I don't, I don't care if it costs us an extra week to do that project. Right. Do it really well, you know. And he was, he was retired. He was, he was enjoying the art of life. So from, you know. So what was it like to, to be friends with Mike? It was, it was fun 90% of the time. It was fun. Sometimes it was really hard work when his Wibgy was deep and detailed and wide and we didn't quite have the time but we we dug in because you know what he was he was always so proud of it and he always gave credit to the people who created it he never said me he'd always say we and sometimes he wouldn't even say we he'd sometimes say those guys Mm -hmm. you know and he was he was never afraid to say all I did was say let's try this and these guys came through yet again you know so that was his humbleness and that was his genuineness. So it was a lot of fun to be with Mike. It was really the most transformative work experience uh, of my life. You know, getting to work with a guy like that was a great privilege. And so much of it comes back to me now. And I, I hope some of this is going to reflect through you to, to the people you're talking to. And, and they're going to say, that's inspiring. And just like you were inspired by Mike, maybe, maybe some of what we're talking about now is going to turn on somebody who's going to watch this video someday and say, 
man, I remember watching that video and Mike was so passionate about it. Mike Connolly was so passionate about it and he talked to that Yankee Candle guy and hell, I'm doing it too. And it's so amazing to think, and it's so amazing that you said that because as you were saying that, because I'm like in, in reflective mode, like none of the stuff that I do today would happen if I never met Mike Hitrich. Well, maybe a lot of it would have happened. You're pretty much self-contained yourself. Yeah, but I'm telling you that conversation, I, I never, so my first mentor, I was like 12. So I was like, I was fascinated by this guy because he was a millionaire. Like I, I don't come from millionaires. So that guy was like, cool, like, oh, that's, billionaires is a real thing. And you know what, this guy just has a bunch of common sense. And then that's when I realized like, I think like successful people. Cause like the things I would say to people that I know, they're like, oh, whatever. But if I said it to like another business person or a successful person, they go, oh my God, it's a great idea. So that, that helped that. But when I met, when I met Mike, and just how he was with me and how he was willing to teach me, like so, like now I I have to teach, I have to share. I don't have courses, I don't have a book. I, like the the job core kids, I might have brushed them off if it wasn't for Mike. Like you know, it everything made like you said the the um, NCAA bracket thing, right? <laughs> it may still have happened, but it wasn't. It, it, two was it 2018, 2019 now. I'm not doing this today. I'm telling you, I'm chasing something else. So like, thank you a million times for everything you just said. But before, you, before I let you go, I want to wrap up with two things. Two, I want to let you say whatever you want to say, but Kringle Candle, I, I want to hear a little bit about that. Like, like, what was that like for Mike to help his son start something? And like, I remember seeing and I, like, I was so happy about it. Like, yes, they're doing something together. And, and Mick is doing his thing, and it's like I could see the whole story because I go from like the PR thing. And what 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 was what was that experience like for Mike to help his son start his own candle business? Uh, it was November of two thousand nine, so it was almost exactly ten years ago. Mike called me on my at my office, and he said, "Hey, would you come up to the house before you go home? Uh, Mick and I, you know, I want to I want to review some stuff with with, with you. Uh, Mick and I are up here." And I walked in, they were sitting in Mike's office. And I said, yeah, what's up? And he says, yeah, sit down. He says, I said, what is it? He goes, um, he says, we're gonna start another candle company. And I said, uh, when, I, when I was able to get my mouth working again, <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, we're gonna start another candle company. Now Mick, this, uh, he had had the, the, the Christmas before so it was the Christmas when 2008 was turning to 2009. He had had a class project. It was, a, it was uh, Greenfield Community College, GCC. His project was, it was a business class, and the idea was you, you had to come up with a product or service and sell it and sort of document your progress and have a business plan. And what he came up with was candles. And what his candles were gonna be was they were gonna be all white, all right? So there's your jar and there's your wax. And maybe people don't know this, but if you take regular candle grade paraffin and pour it into a jar, it looks like water, it's clear. Okay. All right. But when it cools and gets hard, it crystallizes. And depending on the grade of the wax, it's almost pure white. So Mick decided he was gonna to try to make these all white candles that were gonna be different fragrances. Now. Through all of Yankee Candle's history, the lemon candle was always yellow, and the blueberry candle was going to be blue. blue. 
you know, and the pumpkin candle was going to kind of be orange. But he made these all white candles because the idea there was that they would be what the, the term we used was, two-word term, decor neutral. It's just like wearing black mm -hmm. or white. Mm -hmm. goes with everything, right? And we discovered that as we did a little bit of research, or he had done some research, that women who buy 95% of fragrance candles did not want to necessarily buy by fragrance. They had their favorites, okay. but they didn't buy by fragrance. They bought more by color. Because if they had a blue room, they didn't want to put an orange candle in a blue room because right. it just didn't look right. They'd put a light blue candle in the blue room. Okay? So they might have had a blueberry candle in there when they really would rather have a lemon candle right. for their nose, but for their eye, they were going with the candle that fit. So by doing a white candle that was decor neutral, this broke all those barriers away. Suddenly, your favorite fragrance was always the right color. Makes sense. Right? So he had sold some of these candles uh, the previous Christmas 2008, selling them uh, at a candle store in Northampton. I'm not a candle store, a, a clothing, a men's clothing store. They, he bought some of his clothes there and they had a friendly relationship. And he said, yeah, I gotta do this project. Can I put some of my candles on your counter? That's Wes, I know the store too. Yeah. Jackson and Connor. Yes, yeah, yeah. Tara. Yep. Yeah, and, and, they, and they sold out a, a few dozen in like a week. And that made, you know, and he didn't have great signage or something. He had some good labels on him. We had a graphic designer who made a nice label. And I think at that point we were already calling them Kringle Candle because Kringle was a good idea because Kringle was a German word for sort of Christmassy. Mm -hmm. And the K was Kittredge, K, Kringle. Yeah. And it just kind of all fit. So he said, you know, Mick's been talking to me. Now Mick had been an entrepreneur a couple times. He'd already tried a couple of ideas. He'd had a, 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 an MMA. He'd had, he dabbled in MMA. He bought a cage and he staged some fights. He fought in a few fights himself. I think he retired two and one. We lost his first fight, but won his next two. But, bad. Yeah, but got the daylights knocked out of him and said, that's enough for me, you know. Uh, I don't want to walk around with a flat nose, you know. So he had done that. He had had this little, can't, this little clothing idea that he pushed along with a friend of his who was in the clothing business. It was going to be called Reversi, R-E-V-E-R-S-I, I remember it. And it was reversible clothing, reversible jackets, reversible sweatshirts, you know, outer garments, mm -hmm. not shirts, but mm -hmm. like sweatshirts and lighter jackets and stuff. And so you could have 10 things, but 20 looks, right, you know? Right, right. So he, he dabbled with that. Um, and uh, he later on dabbled with something else, but I, I don't want to talk about that one. But he, um, he had had these different ideas. So he had been entrepreneurial as a younger teen, but this now as a college project really took hold. And it inspired his father because he thought, you know what, I would love to try to do this again. And what, what greater project in my later life than to start a candle company all over again, but do something kind of like Yankee, right. but do it with a whole different spin mm -hmm. and aim a little higher up the pyramid. Remember the ladies in the Mercedes? Yeah. Let's try to aim almost at the top of the pyramid. You know, the ladies in the Audis, <laughs> what you want to call them. But so that was Kringle Candle, was the idea that we were going to do it a little, a little more sophisticated, different project, different product, different, slightly different way of marketing. We were going to be talking to, you know, kind of like if you watch HGTV, like the, the, the ladies that like to watch Joanna Gaines, Chip and Joanna Gaines, you know. Okay. And uh, it was a little more sophisticated than, say, you know, Martha Stewart. A little bit Makes more. Sense. A little bit more. And that was the approach. And the idea was that 
Look, there's people who go to Yankee Candle, but they might also go to Kringle Candle. And people say, you're crazy putting Kringle Candle, you know, 13 miles up the road from Yankee Candle. And Mike said, yeah, I don't know. Burger King has done a pretty good job right. building their restaurants right across the street from McDonald's for all these years, because what happens? People come, they think they're going to McDonald's, and they say at the last minute, you know, Burger King looks better to me today. Mm -hmm. And off they go over there. So everybody gets their share. So, so, so doing Kringle was like an enormous amount of work, but it was all exciting because it was familiar, but different. Right. It was, we've done this, but not quite like this. So it, there was always that different spin of we're going to do it a little different this time. And um, it was great reliving kind of our glory days in a new way, at a new time, in a new era. And the internet now was available to us. When we were doing Yankee and those big build years, we did it kind of like, it was like sort of the stone ages right. for us. But now we had all these great research tools and, and marketing tools and promotional tools and, and we could just coalesce things so much faster. So with a very small team to start from that conversation in November 2009, when we stood in front of that store almost exactly a year later on October 2010, and cut the ribbon and said, here it is, folks. Um, what a whirlwind year that was. And I don't think I've ever had a harder working year in my life than that year. But it really was. It was a lot of fun because Mike, Mike made it fun. Yeah. He said, we're going to have new products and we're going to have new marketing and we're going to just, we're going to kick it out of the, knock it out of the park and, awesome. and have a blast doing it. So, and he, he wanted to make sure that Mick could be successful right away. He said, I don't want him to struggle with this business. I want him to be able to kind of have some success right away and feel success mm -hmm. and understand success. Because I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here to nurture him and mentor him. And I want him to already be starting, you know, not at the, not at the starting line, but a little ways down right. the 100 yard so dash. Start at the 30 yard line <laughs> on yeah. the 100-yard dash. Yeah. And I think he can take it the other 70 yards himself. Yeah, I, I knew. Well, I knew Kringle was going to do well because you guys were behind it. Um, I know Tara, um, she's Kato, but she's Brewster now from Jackson and Connor, and she was talking about it, and she was, because I never met Mick, but she was talking about him, and I was like, man, he sounds like he could do it. And then when I was watching, because I was around this time, I wanted to get into um, speaking. And I had like a really, because I'm originally from the Bahamas, so like my accent was super strong. Even when I get excited, you can't understand what I say today. But I would watch all four hours of the Today Show. And in the final hour, it was Hoda and Kathy Lee. And I remember Kathy Lee came on talking about Kringle Candle. And when she was talking about it, I was like, yeah, the, the marketing message is right. Her excitement's right. Um, it's gonna be, it's gonna do well because that audience is gonna eat this up for so many reasons. And I can, I will never forget that. I just remember, I just remember, because I, I saw it happening and it was like so cool watching it unfold, man. And then, then I started seeing the billboards and the messaging and all this other stuff. And I was like, yeah, man, this is, this is pretty cool. It's like watching a blueprint unfold, man. And so it was really cool seeing seeing it happen and seeing Mick do well, I, like, I, I know Mike must have been like super proud to see that happen like that. Oh yeah, he was. It was, it was a great day in those early years and 
He was just so excited. He loved being there and he loved feeling that same old excitement, but he didn't have the pressure of having to be successful. Right. He just had the fun. Remember, like I told you, mm -hmm. like he liked to skulk around in his sunglasses and his ball cap pulled down. He could kind of do that all over again. And, and he loved feeling that people were entertained, that they felt the value, that they, that they really enjoyed being there. And that was, that was like everything to him to, to be able to do it again. Yeah, they did. The, I like the I like the the farm table idea. I like the coffee and cars idea. Like it was just it was just so much different thinking, man. To to drive traffic. That's what, before I give you the, the last thing you said. That's what I wanted to talk about. When you were talking about the tin cans of people coming in <laughs> to um to to experience to to get to the experience to then in turn end up buying candles. Like that makes me think of um marketing on the internet, right? targeted traffic like you got specific group of traffic that you want to send to a certain landing page or website and then they then break down into subgroups of people that would click on something or people that would want to walk into the store after they experience it and then once they walk in the store the conversion people that convert people that can actually buy so i thought it was so cool that you laid that out because i try to tell people all the time like uh, traditional marketing and, and digital marketing is, is the same stuff if you know what you're looking to measure. Um, uh, and so that, that was cool. So I wanted to say that. So with that, what are, what are your final thoughts on Mike? Anything you, you would want people to know about him? Um, or anything else you want to say? I know you, you brought these. Um I'll, 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 look, I'll look at a couple of them. Um, this uh, is something that we prepared for Mike to talk to a graduating college class and it was he wanted it to be inspirational but in Mike's inimitable way he always wanted it to be practical and useful too. Mm -hmm. So the first thing he'd say is have a passion. You know and a lot of people say that when they're talking to a college class. You know, you've got to have passion. Well it's true. You know if you're not excited about what you're doing that's what it takes to, to, to stand out. You gotta, your excitement's got to be there. You know? Otherwise, you're just, you know, I don't know, maybe you'd be excited selling chalk, but I don't get that idea that you'd be excited selling chalk. You get excited telling people how to grow their business. Yeah. That doubt. turns yes. you on. You okay. know? So he'd also say pay attention to detail. We talked about that earlier, but detail really makes the difference. The devil is in the details, and the angels can be in the details too, because yep. when you get the details right, People say, oh, that's so cool, you know? Mm -hmm. And exciting people is what it takes. Um, be your own expert. Make sure you understand every piece of the jobs, all the, all the jobs in your organization, whether you're a two-person or three-person organization or a thousand-person organization. At least understand what the jobs are. If you can't do them yourself, at least understand what the jobs are so that you can see how you're doing. Do your homework, you know, do your homework. Make sure, if you think you know it all about your business, you're wrong. True. And the internet has made it easier and easier to know about the business and right around the fringes of your business. If you're selling screws, you ought to know about nails. If you're selling nails and screws, you ought to know about screwdrivers and nail guns. Mm. You know, think about what's around your business. What's the next step out? Because that may have impact for you at some point. Um, be willing to change your idea. Be willing to admit you're wrong. Sometimes you are. Mike used to have this sort of mythical place that he called the Museum of Bad Ideas. <laughs> 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 I 
And the best one of that was when I first came to Yankee Candle, he had, there were all these, they had this area where they would sell off the seconds and the stuff that wasn't moving. Mm -hmm. And he referred to it sort of as the, as the museum of bad ideas because one of the candle line ideas they'd had the year before I joined the company was the sweet shop. Okay, a sweet shop. We'll have a line of candles that'll be licorice and banana split and cotton candy and creme de menthe and, and all these kind of like sweet, like mm -hmm. it was like mm -hmm. a candy shop in a jar. Sounded good on paper, but he, he kind of felt that they rushed it and they didn't really do the research on it and it didn't sell. So they, were, they had all these licorice candles to get rid of because very few people want their house to smell like licorice. Um, be entertaining. Remember I talked about the dog and the ball? Mm -hmm. he, said, he said, man, if people are watching me throw a dog, a ball, then I'm, my store is not interesting enough. Always try to make sure it's entertaining. Um, uh, here's a great thing you kind of touched on earlier about your team. This is maybe one of the most important things, and he said, and he, he used to say, this, people just don't remember this enough. I wish they remembered this more. He'd say, now, you, there's only a, a part, there's a, you can't always do this through all of your life, but he would say, you need to have friends half your age and twice your age. Okay. Now, that's easy to do when you're in your 30s and 40s. <laughs> when you reach your 50s, it gets, it gets real hard to have a friend twice your age. Right. But he used to say that that would give you perspective. You had to understand what younger people were into and what they were responding to. And you have to understand what older people see about your business. And he says, never assume you know it all. Talk to people. Don't just go by market research. Don't just go by what, they're what the experts are telling you, you consultants. Just talk to regular people and see what they think. Sure. So, I mean, you know, look, we could be here another hour and we'd never stop talking about Mike, but... Um, yeah, we might have to do a part two. We might have to do a part two. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was a great guy. He was a visionary. I think he was a genius, and he was inspirational, and uh, it was a privilege to, to know him and work with him for me, and I'm just glad that, that, some, of, that some of him is living on through you and other entrepreneurs, and uh, excited to see what you're going to do with it. Thank you so much, man. I mean so much coming from you. Tim, man, like I said, like you said, we could keep going. I'm going to wrap it up, man. Thank you so much. I always like to say time is the most valuable commodity, so thank you for spending some time with me. And what you did for me in this episode um, was help me understand. That I always talk about this thing in the back of my head that tells me to do something, and I listen to that. And I'm promising you, that's Mike Kittridge's voice, man, because a lot of these key points and things you were saying, and I'm, yeah, I do that. Oh, that's where I got that from. Where did I get that from? So I know you, when we talked a couple of days ago, you said a lot of the stuff that I was reading as a kid, you probably wrote. And so I got to thank you for writing those things because that became the blueprint for my entrepreneurial life. So thank you, man. This is like a dream come true. You know, un unfortunately, we lost my great guy, man. I, don't, I, I, I promise like, for the rest of my life, I will always share his story and what he was because I think everybody that ever touches entrepreneurship needs to know Mike Kerridge and that candle wax for his mom to 500 million so and everything in between that that's that, like that the beginning and the end is just like like a bullet point it's just like oh man that's a cool thing but like in between i think everybody needs to know him so thank you for coming and sharing this story and i, I definitely want you back again man I, we got to figure out how to keep keep this going but this whole podcast is dedicated to my carriage and that conversation that he had with me in hopes that other people like you said can get some of that and they go and do something amazing and it all be because of my carriage. So thanks again. Uh, he was a life changer for me and I, I know he's a life changer for other people too. Thank you, sir.